It has been two years and twelve days since I last treated a patient. As most of you have probably figured out by the name of my podcast and how I start every episode, this is not a happy story. It goes against my better judgment to have the beginning of my episode start with an episode list start with an unhappy story about my burnout as a healthcare provider. But about a year ago, I was featured in a spotlight for the non-clinical PT website. It's a resource for clinical providers who are looking to transition into a new career. I received a lot of positive feedback from readers who resonated with my story and were relieved to read something that let them know they weren't alone. So in an effort to do that for more people, here it goes. My story began in 2005 after I graduated from college. I was looking at either going into the FBI or my local police force and working up to the emergency response team. Both paths were long application processes, so I got a job just to pay the bills. I was working in the central service department of a local hospital. For those who aren't familiar, central service is kind of like an internal FedEx for the hospital. We would find out what each floor needed for supplies and deliver them. Our home base was down the hall from the physical therapy department, so I would walk by the office several times each shift. One day as I was passing by, a woman with a walker was taking steps out of the office. There was a PT on one side of her and a PT aide on the other side to support her as she was pretty unsteady on her feet. Tears were streaming down her face as she said, I'm doing it. I'm walking again. I stopped in my tracks and it hit me. Oh, that's what I'm supposed to do with my life. I withdrew my applications later that week and started researching what I needed to do to enter a career in physical therapy. The first step was realizing that I had to have to go through prerequisite coursework of some kind and that would add some time before I could start a career. I graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology with minors in sociology and philosophy. I was underqualified for any work in psychology, but overqualified for any good-paying job that didn't require education. So my bachelor's degree was a very expensive paperweight. I was relegated to minimum wage jobs, and the aforementioned bills to pay I went through an atypical route to becoming a physical therapist. I decided to get an associate's degree as a physical therapist assistant first. This certainly increased my student loan debt in the long term, but as a part-time program it let me continue working in the short term. I want to emphasize a point as I go forward with my story. During the prerequisite coursework and the PTA program itself, I absolutely and overwhelmingly fell in love with the human body. Still to this day, it's my favorite topic to learn about, talk about, and especially marvel about. After the PTA program, I started working right away while taking the prerequisite coursework to get into a doctorate of physical therapy program. I was able to get into a doctorate program and graduated from it in 2012. After passing the licensure exam, I was ready to hit the ground running. Since I was working as a PTA throughout the DPT program, having four years of clinical experience as a new grad physical therapist really helped in landing what I immediately thought of as my dream job. I was hired at a massive health club that, for someone who had fallen in love with the human body, made me feel like I was a kid in a candy store. Obviously, there was physical therapy, but there was also multiple floors of gyms, several pools, including an underwater treadmill, tennis courts, racquetball courts, basketball courts, physicians, podiatry, dietitians, massage, some of the best personal trainers I've ever worked with, one of the most successful weight loss programs in the country, a restaurant, childcare, and even a detailing shop for your car. The place was incredible. There were also two smaller facilities in my city with less amenities, but still the same caliber of company culture. 
I loved my job. Never mind the incredible things that the company was, had done in the past, and was pushing towards in the future, but they fully supported me as a PT. They strongly encouraged continuing education, even including hosting research-proven systems. They left me alone to practice as I see fit, which is incredibly important to me. There were mentorship programs, and we had a collaborative community of providers from multiple disciplines to make sure patients got what they needed. Over the first couple of years working there, I was fortunate enough to be promoted to manage one of the two satellite PT clinics. The location had been struggling with numbers over the couple of years I worked at the main clinic, and my productivity numbers stood out enough to warrant a promotion to try and increase the satellite clinic's numbers too. This was a fantastic opportunity for me. Not only did I get a promotion, but my commute went from a 90-minute bus ride to a 25-minute walk to work. It had always been confusing to me how the clinic could possibly be struggling. It had strong numbers with the previous manager, but after she left the company, a new manager was not replaced until me. The clinic was situated in the middle of a neighborhood filled with apartment buildings. It was also only a few blocks away from the main Amazon campus. I thought it'd be easy to increase patient numbers. To me, the only possible explanation for poor numbers was the lack of someone doing the manager's, manager's duty, including marketing and connecting with local physicians. The job that I loved had just gotten so much sweeter. Shortly after starting my new role, a high-profile NFL athlete contacted the company I worked for wishing to use our underwater treadmill as part of his rehab. The leadership in the company tapped me to be the point person on this in an effort to drive some business to my clinic by association with this athlete. I was not going to be doing any rehab work with him. He was bringing his own provider with him. I was simply to be there to operate the underwater treadmill and put someone in the company uniform next to the athlete as he moved through the club. Sort of in-house marketing, you might say. Naturally, as a PT, I couldn't resist analyzing the things that I saw, but I always kept it to myself simply because I didn't feel like it was my place to butt in. However, the athlete's provider could see it on my face that the gear is returning. My particular brand of PT was a blend of neuromotor control and functional movement patterns, and for me, how the athlete was moving may as well have been a screaming beacon of a particular problem pattern. Because I wasn't good at keeping my face stoic, one day his provider point-blank asked me, "'What are you seeing?' I was immediately horrified and instantaneously felt like I was violating the role I was supposed to be playing in this relationship. I tried to recover with, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, nothing. I, I don't want to impose on your session. His provider was fairly blunt by nature and immediately shot back with, what are you seeing? You see something and I want to know what it is. I responded, I think he has an issue in, with his L3 pathway. For non-medical providers, the L3 pathway is a nerve coming off the low back that controls various muscles in the hips and legs. His provider frowned and said, Three years ago, he had an injury at L3 and L4, and that was never released to the public. How did you know that? I explained that the gait pattern he was demonstrating suggested some inhibition to the muscles that were controlled by that L3 nerve pathway. Interesting. What would you do about it? I was right back in shock with that question. Really, I don't want to disturb your work, to which he responded, Stop. What would you do, and how long would it take? Clearly, I was no longer just an equipment operator anymore. I was involved no matter how hard I tried to remove myself. <sighs> I would use a technique and try to reset the pathway. That takes about ten minutes. All right, insert player name here. Get out of the pool. Adam, do your thing. This was one of the most nerve-wracking experiences of my life. 
I was confident in my technical skill, but now I'm working with a multi-million dollar athlete under the direct scrutiny of another provider who has this athlete's trust. I did my treatment while screaming in my head, what if I'm wrong? Did I really see what I thought I did? Please be right. At this point in my career, I was pretty confident in my diagnostic abilities. Were this any other situation, I would only have the standard level of skepticism that is appropriate, correction, mandatory, for a provider to have that I might have missed something. What I saw was about as textbook as I could ask for in a presentation. Typically what I was doing, I would expect to see a fairly significant response quickly to the treatment. This would allow for a window to start retraining motor control while the system is reset. Repeat the treatment a number of times, all while having the patient continue working on their motor retraining, and success rates were fairly reliable. At this moment, though, the imposter syndrome was real. I continued to perseverate in my head, please work, please work, please work. This experience was my first lesson that professional athletes are different. Their bodies are, to be frank, better than everyone else's. Turns out it's a job requirement, but I'll talk about that more in a future episode. I finished the treatment, please work, please work, please work, and said out loud this time, okay, player name here, go ahead and get out of the pool. He started running on the treadmill again, and his gait was perfect. My jaw dropped. I've never seen a response to the work that I did take so well and so fast. His provider immediately barked at me, what did you do? Explain it to me. I stumbled through a speech I'd given to patients a thousand times before on what I did and what happened, but it was totally on autopilot. I was dumbstruck at what I was seeing in front of me. This experience opened a couple doors for me. One is the obvious. I spent more time communicating with the athlete's provider, but I was also introduced to his massage therapist. At this point in time, his massage therapist had exclusively worked with NFL athletes for almost two decades. She is incredible at what she does but she also knows her limitations. She had developed a network of different kinds of providers throughout the nation to do things she could not. I became part of her network. The far more profound door opening, though, was that this experience revolutionized my practice. Going forward, I learned that professional athletes responded like my non-athlete patients did, except that the treatment effects were just a great deal more pronounced. A huge magnitude of change in an athlete's body was something I started noticing in my other patients, but in minute ways. The very small changes I used to miss in patients previously were no longer being missed. I learned so much more about neuromotor control through working with that population than I ever could through continuing education classes or research. My fairly strong patient outcomes at that time only got stronger, as did my fascination and love with the human body. I said at the beginning that this is a sad story. Within months of this revolution in my practice, the first pebble that eventually builds to an avalanche started to roll. I'll state that what comes next never changed my love for the body nor soured the experiences I had up to this point. No matter the intensity of my passion and love, a fall was coming anyway. It's pretty hard to stay on your feet in an avalanche. There's a side of practice that nearly every medical provider will tell you is one of the worst parts of their job, documentation. With all the, with all, what all medical providers know that many non-providers don't is that the hatred of docu- documentation isn't typically the tedium of it. Documentation is the thing that gets a provider paid for their service. However, there are ever-increasing ways that our reimbursements are being cut. Documentation takes a lot of time to compete, complete, but it's not actually billable time. It's nearly impossible to write a note that a payer couldn't scrutinize and find some way to reject the payment for that day's session. 
A lot of providers out there cite the bureaucracy part of the profession as a major contributor to their burnout. I will admit that this is a component that added to the avalanche, but if I were to put a number on it, the documentation, reimbursement, prior authorization, etc. stuff was only about 30 or 40 percent of why I burned out. I'll certainly go into more stories tied to the ridiculous lack of sustainability tied to the bureaucracy in future episodes, but for my story specifically, there's not much else to say about it. Despite the clinic I was managing being an area of the city with a bunch of apartment buildings, despite the connections to professional athletes, despite the proximity to a massive company campus, the clinic still was not growing. I was at a complete loss until one of the PTs in the clinic came to me after doing an initial evaluation on a patient. He said, you need to hear this. My last patient just told me that he called eight other clinics before us, but none of them took his insurance. He had to go to his insurance website, find a list of locations that would take his insurance, just to find us. He lives a block and a half away. We were closer than any other clinic he called, but we never showed up on his Google search. I set to work using both Google and Bing to try and find our clinic. I know a lot of people laugh at the usage of Bing, but our company had a long-standing relationship with Microsoft. I figured due diligence was necessary. Regardless... It didn't matter what I typed into either search engine. The closest I could get was the main company website. It wasn't even the physical therapy department page that came up. As a reminder, the primary facility was about an hour's drive away from our clinic. Our satellite clinic was also a rental space in a building where we had little to no control over external displays. So between the limited external display and no presence on the internet, it was obvious what the problem was. No one in the area knew we even existed. We finally cracked the problem. I got on the phone and called my boss to inform him of what we found. Unsurprisingly, he was as shocked as we were. However, we were all excited at the prospect of the search engine optimization we could get, that could get the ball rolling on getting patients in our doors. The most effective way to grow a medical practice is word of mouth. The second most effective isn't even close. But if you have no mouths, there are no words to spread. Bringing this information to senior leadership was met with, hmm, SEO is expensive. We should do a mailer. Sit with that for a second. The residents around the clinic were almost exclusively software engineers in their early to mid-20s, and we were told we should do a mailer. I was flabbergasted. I did a calculation comparing the cost of local SEO per month versus the maximum possible income of the clinic. The SEO cost was about 30% of the total value of the clinic space, and we were operating below 40% capacity. I fought this for months, but never made any headway. About two years after I was promoted to grow the clinic, it was closed due to lack of profitability, and the space was repurposed to a fitness room. SEO would not have saved the clinic alone, but you can't get people to come something they don't know exists. There are fewer experiences in my life that have been more frustrating than this one. This experience created an underlying anger in me that never went away. I need to point out that it is my fault for never doing the work to let it go. And this fact alone was the first pebble that led to the avalanche. Defeated and frustrated, I went back to physical therapy without a leadership role. My personal practice never faltered. I only continued to see increased demand for space on my schedule after the clinic was closed. I had an ideal combination of natural talent for what I did, but also an extreme work ethic to always try and improve. In hindsight, I went too heavy into that work ethic, grinding myself into the dirt in a couple of ways. For one, physical therapy is a manual labor job. For as much as we preach good posture and form, much of the work required is impossible to do with improper form. 
The most obvious demonstration they can provide is to imagine someone who weighs 350 pounds laying on your dining room table. They are unable to move their legs due to a medical condition. Feel free to mentally walk through how you can, with good posture, help that person roll from their back to their side without causing that person an injury. Our job causes breakdown in our own bodies over time. It's one of the reasons you rarely see a quote-unquote old physical therapist. I don't really have much else to say to that in my story regarding this other than, as time went on, I had more and more aches and pains that were difficult to treat when I couldn't remove the offending factor. Second, physical therapy, like most medical disciplines, is a customer service job before it is anything else. There's a fine line between you as a therapist and a cashier at McDonald's. If you piss off a customer, they won't be coming back. They'll likely also tell their friends, family, and coworkers about their experience. I want to be clear, no amount of education, skill, abilities, talents, whatever matter if a patient doesn't like you. Without buy-in, you will lose that patient, and they have the opportunity to reduce potential patients through word of mouth as well. An empty schedule means no job. Remember that as I go forward with the rest of my story. In any kind of customer service situation, the more unreasonable a person is, the more likely it is that they will be loud about their negative experience. Therefore, an exponentially increasing amount of effort is required to handle a person the more linearly unreasonable they are. There comes a point in this graph where no matter what you do, the person is going to be unhappy and scream about it. Most of us can recognize this person a mile away and don't trust anything they say anyway. However, as we slide back down that line of unreasonableness, the ease of public distrust and what that person screams starts to become less reliable. A patient presents with nonspecific low back pain. I get their history and begin my examination. I explain what I am doing and why I am doing it throughout this process. I leave room for questions, and I try to get confirmation that the patient understands before moving to the next step. I report that I have a few theories on why their back may be hurting, but with how complicated the body is, especially regarding low back pain, it's difficult to know immediately. I explain I'm going to send the patient home with a program of two exercises that shouldn't take more than 10 minutes in a day to complete, but that they need to be done every day. I explain that I need that program done in this frequency in order to see how their body reacts and changes mechanically between now and next week. This will help rule in one origin of the problem versus another. I walk the patient through the two exercises, I ensure proper form, and again emphasize the need for data to help determine the path we need to take. The patient returns next week. I ask how they're feeling and they respond. It's the same. It still hurts. Okay, how did the home program go? I didn't have time to do it. I now have no additional data with, to work with to help determine the diagnosis and course of action. Next, I go through some of the original measurements, which are unsurprisingly similar to last week. I explain that just like the symptoms, the mechanics are in the same place as last week, too. My hope is to demonstrate that for something to change, something has to be done. I start working on a manual therapy intervention, specifically targeting the dysfunctions I found in the initial evaluation. I learn some more information and I convey what I'm finding to the patient. I try to relate my findings to their pain specifically. And I also explain that these interventions will only give us a window of better movement. For lasting change, we need to retrain the muscles to help hold the manual intervention that I did. It's kind of like stretching. You get a window of looser muscles, but unless we change the movement pattern, the muscles will just tighten back up again. 
I know I need to change the home program because the patient wasn't compliant with the first one. I find a couple of different exercises that take less time than the previous one and can even be done in bed without equipment in hopes of removing friction to compliance. I explain again that these are essential not only for the diagnostic process, but towards creating permanence for the changes I create in the clinic. The next week, the patient returns, and again, I ask how they're feeling. I'm the same. Okay, did you have any troubles with the new home program? I was too overwhelmed with work last week, so I, I, I didn't do the program. I'll speed this up for you. This pattern continues for three more visits. It's understandable that patients can have a hard time getting their home program done for many reasons, both real blockers and perceived blockers. This is the human condition. I harbor no ill will in these circumstances, but it also makes progress incredibly difficult to borderline impossible. In our next visit together, the patient starts off with, I'm not getting any better. My back still hurts, sometimes worse than when I first came in. I can't work out anymore because it hurts so much and I'm losing sleep. What is going on? My blood pressure rises. Deep breath. Customer service. Be empathetic. All roll through my head. Clearly, my strategies of explaining what I'm doing, why I am doing it, what I am finding, what needs to be done, and why personal contributions are required have not landed. I begin with affirming the patient's complaints are real and express understanding on how frustrating the pain and its effects are. I explain that I know how hard it can be to find time to do your home program in a day. I try to build connection on a personal level that I'm not any different. I struggle with doing my own home program. However, it's also incredibly difficult to make improvements without making change. I try to find new methods of teaching because we all learn differently. I stop explanations about anatomy and biomechanics because even in patient-friendly language, they are not helpful for this patient. I cut the home program to one exercise that won't provide any mechanical or even lasting benefit to the patient, but can briefly relieve symptoms. My hope is to create a feedback loop that doing something on your own can create detectable change, fostering more compliance with the home program. I never see this patient again. I do, however, receive an internet review five days later. This place is terrible. The PT wouldn't listen to me, didn't help me at all, and even made my pain worse. Don't go here. This is one of those horror stories you hear about where medical professionals who don't know what they're doing are allowed to work with patients. If you were to see this review in isolation without the context of what I said before, you might think this review is trustworthy. You may decide to avoid coming to the clinic I was working at. This review had no effect on my practice, and individually this patient is not a big deal. As I've said, my personal practice never suffered for lack of patients. It was more rare than not for me to have a wait list than it was to have empty spaces over the course of my career. The larger, larger issue was that over time, this, this type of person was not the minority of my patients. It is exhausting to provide good customer service to this kind of person. Personally, I don't even particularly care about good customer service, but professionally, it was my job to care about it. I was being given money for the job description of treat patients and get good outcomes. In order to do that, I need to have patients. And to have patients, I had to provide good customer service. Without good customer service, there's no buy-in in what I need them to do in order to get better. Every so often, I would look at my schedule for the day and see that 80% of my patients was this kind of person, and I would call in sick. The level of effort required for that was just too much for one day. Side note. If you ever notice that you get a call from a clinic that your appointment has been canceled because your provider is sick, and you see them two days later and they're totally fine, it might be one of those situations. If you've got the mental space for it, check in with your provider. They're humans too. Anyway, as my career progressed, 
the number of these patients was increasing every day. It got to the point that on any given day, to 60 to 70% of my patients were that guy. I can't call in sick every day, so I went to work. Day after day, week after week, year after year. My job became what alcohol is to an alcoholic. It left me physically and emotionally wrecked. It was ruining my relationships and most importantly, the one with my wife. And I was in a constant state of severe depression and seething rage. Every day I found myself saying, one day at a time, just put one foot in front of the other. Looking more than a day into the future was so overwhelming I couldn't handle it. I'm in a better place now with my new career. As a junior-level product manager in a SaaS company, I'm making the same amount of money I did at the pinnacle of my PT career. I have real benefits. Stress is way lower, and I have free time again. Life is much better. However, I still have a long road of repairing the relationships I was destroying and healing both my body and mind from the trauma of my previous job. My name is Adam, and I'm a physical therapist. It has been two years and 12 days since I last treated a patient.